calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing and capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. For today's guest, that description could not be more accurate. Our conversation spans stock market bubbles, a lost Rococo painting, a way to deal with extreme inequality, and interplanetary finance. William Getzman is the Edwin J. Beinecke Professor of Finance and Management Studies and the Faculty Director of the International Center for Finance at the Yale School of Management. His current research focuses on alternative investing, behavioral finance, and the economics of the arts. He's a renowned financial market historian and has written and co-authored several books, most recently, Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible. His article, The Financial Analyst Journal and Investment Management, appeared in the third quarter issue of 2020, celebrating 75 years since the founding of CFA Institute's flagship publication. If you enjoy learning about financial history, you're in for a real treat today. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Professor Getzman, and I hope you do too. Professor William Getzman, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, I've been so looking forward to our conversation today because you have such a unique background. And I always like to start somewhere interesting, and I thought your background would be somewhere good to start. Um, I read in the EFT that as a young man, you participated in archaeology digs, you studied art history, and in the words of the reporter, cavorted with specialists in cuneiform writing. So this begs the question, how did you end up in finance? Well, I love doing all of those things. So when I got out of college, um, I spent a lot of time in interesting um, activities, uh, some of which you describe. Uh, and, um, you know, it was really reflective of my interest in academic um, research. Uh, you know, what I do now in my financial research is dig into uh, ancient uh, lists of stock prices and try and understand the long history of the stock markets. And that's really connected to my early interest in archaeology and how uh, the modern world uh, is really a reflection of a long process of development. And uh, so um, I like to think that this dimension of time is what kind of connects me to the archaeological work that I started off uh, as a young man uh, pursuing. So you spent a lot of time thinking about bubbles and thinking about art. And I was reading that this year, I guess 2020, marks the 300th anniversary of the crashing of the South Sea and Mississippi bubbles. So I know that you've spent the past year trying to analyze a lost painting, but for those in the audience who may not know much about the, the bubbles, perhaps you can give us a little bit of history on the South Sea and Mississippi bubbles, and then tell us 
uh, what happened and why this lost painting has intrigued you? Sure, I would love to. Um, the Mississippi bubble is a, uh, a famous episode in financial history because it was the first big stock market bubble. And it was actually a global bubble that spread first to Great Britain and then spread back to the continent and eventually engulfed Europe in this enthusiasm about stocks. And so behind that enthusiasm was this belief that the economic exploitation of the new world uh, would become the new economy of their era. And in fact, it did. But in 1720, it wasn't clear exactly uh, what kind of economy that would be. So in France, it took a very interesting um, turn because France owned the Mississippi Territory, which is something that extended all the way up the Mississippi River, uh, the Missouri River. So it wasn't just Louisiana. It was a vast territory in the North American continent that was almost unexplored. And so uh, this was like a bet that we would take now on, bit, on Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Uh, a lot of excitement, not much know-how. Uh, and so uh, in that setting, what happened is People, small individual investors were given an opportunity to buy into these things, uh, to buy into these um, ideas of developing the new world, of, of, of trading uh, uh, in the Atlantic and so forth. First, in, in uh, like I said, the, in France, the company was called the Mississippi Company. But in England, that company was called the South Sea Company, really about the South Atlantic. And then in um, Holland, it was the uh, Dutch West Indies Company. So these companies just fired people's imagination. Um, in France, the, the person that had the genius to sell all the stocks to ordinary people, as opposed to keep it uh, the purview of uh, the royalty, um, uh, was a, a, a man named John Law, who was actually a Scot a Scottish uh, son of a banker, a sort of ne'er-do-well who escaped from prison in England to find himself on the continent running gambling parlors to very high-class people, but with an idea that finance could really save uh, the, um, the finances of France and other countries uh, that were in great debt. Make a long story short, he convinced the crown, uh, he convinced uh, Louis XIV's uh, regent or, uh, to, um, to proceed with a plan to launch a bank and then a Mississippi company. And part of that launch was um, a need to create a very powerful edifice, uh, a symbol that this thing was not just a fly-by-night enterprise, but it had great gravitas and weight and the, the weight of the crown behind it. So John Law bought a huge estate right in the middle of Paris and then had a great expense that estate converted into a bank and a trading uh, floor. And the bank he decorated with a painting um, done by an Italian painter named uh, Pellegrini, 
that depicted the all of the benefits of this Mississippi system that he had proposed. The trade, pictures of the trade with the, the New World, um, pictures of the, of the marketplace that he was going to create. Um, and then, of course, crowning it all were symbols of the, uh, the, the authority of the crown and uh, the pictures of the sun and the young king and everything, just to make sure that all of this was falling under the, 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 the purview of the, um, of the royal authority. And so this great painting was finished in 1720 as the stock market had crept up 10 times its value. And then as the stock market in 1720 began to crash in France, people turned against John Law and against the bank and against the Mississippi Company. And by the end of the year, John Law had to escape France in disgrace. Uh, France confiscated all of his wealth. And, um, uh, and then within 15 years, this huge painting, sort of half the size of the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, uh, was destroyed, erasing this memory of this strange episode in financial history and in France's own history. So uh, I got interested in the painting because it depicted his ideas in these allegories that people in the 17th century used to uh, represent ideas like um, uh, trust and uh, f interest and um, then uh, angels that represented the, the spirit of, of ethics and morals, because, of course, people thought finance was maybe a shady and evil thing to, to advance. Um, and uh, through some text and analytics and research, my colleague um, Darius Spieth and I, um, Darius is a professor of art history at um, Louisiana State University, he and I figured out what all the iconography of this painting must have been um, even though it's long lost. and uh, That is fascinating. Yeah. And are you planning on publishing something about this? Yes, it's just come out um, uh, in, a, uh, in an academic journal called Journal 18. Uh, and uh, it's got an illust it's fully illustrated with um, sketches that we know were done in preparation for the painting. And, um, and also, crazy cartoons that were done as a way of making fun of the of the painting and, and of the use of art by the French royal family. Um, the satirical prints at that time were um, ways that people tried to represent finance as a, a, a subversive force in society. And so... Um, uh, we can learn a lot about the modern response to financial innovation by looking at this 300-year-old uh, conflict uh, between old economy and new economy and the disruption that it, occur that, that it brought on in society at the time. Well, let's delve a bit more into some of those lessons. Uh, what are some of those lessons and what should today's investors take away and understand about bubbles? Well, the first thing that's important to understand is that bubbles are extremely rare. The reason we're talking about a bubble in 1720 and the next one that would come to mind is probably uh, <clears throat> 1929 and the next one to come to mind would probably be um, 1999 tech bubble. 
there are only a handful of bubbles that you can really recall uh, when you start thinking about it over a stretch of 300 years. So uh, the first thing to, to realize is that um, there's, they're rare because uh, a, the market will go up a lot of times, but it doesn't always come back down. Even when you see a very uh, big increase in uh, stock prices, it's not a sure thing that they're going to crash to earth. So I would say people should be careful about um, uh, worrying about bubbles all the time. Um, the second thing is that when my colleagues and I, in our series of uh, research projects about the 1720 bubble, began to look at what are the underlying causes of the stock price going up, um, one of them I mentioned, which is the excitement about the development of the new world, which actually included some uh, fairly evil things having to do with slavery and the creation of the plantation system. And, um, and it, it set us all on a, a track that we are still grappling with today. But beyond that, um, 1720 was a period when um, people discovered that you could use the corporate form to do all sorts of things, especially to create um, new kinds of companies um, that uh, were um, manufacturing processes that could be turned into companies, uh, new kinds of mining operations, new kind of transportation systems. Uh, so uh, that sort of freedom of the corporation was also something that got people excited. And that was a period of transformation, fundamental transformation in access to capital. So uh, when I look at uh, any period of uh, that we would call a bubble, I always look for the innovations that mm, inspired that sudden increase in stock prices uh, or asset prices. Um, and uh, typically, a bubble is a sign that there's some kind of, uh, uh, of uh, either creative destruction or inf innovation that will uh, transform things in the future. Those are good lessons to, to take to heart. So here at CFA Institute, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about the future of finance and this question, why is finance important? And I wonder if you could take us back to your book, your 2016, Money Changes Everything, How Finance Made Civilization Possible, and just share the thesis of the book and your thoughts on why finance is important. Sure. Uh Again, that's a book that uh, stretches the, over 5,000 years of human history and uh, has its deep roots in uh, the uh, ancient Near East and the Fertile Crescent and the first cities. My argument in the book is that finance is a technology. And you can use a technology for good or you can use it for ill. So it doesn't have any moral uh, weight or moral direction in and of itself, uh, but it's a very powerful set of tools that now we rely on for, for things like um, how do we save for our retirement, um, you know, how do we finance new enterprise, uh, how do we sustain uh, university uh, in perpetuity. But um, the technology of finance is a technology of time. So um, the, the essence of finance is the movement of value 
backwards and forwards through time. And so um, an example, of course, is a loan. A loan, if I borrow some money, suddenly there's money that appears right now that I can use, for example, to buy a house, more money than I have in my savings. Um, and then I pay it back in the future. If I'm lending somebody some money, I uh, defer my uh, uh, consumption and spending uh, uh, until I get the loan paid back. But in that way, I'm giving my future self uh, a lump sum of money that can be spent in the future. So I can plan for my existence in the future, my future um, needs uh, through this financial technology. So that's the structure of and logic of finance that I present in the book. And then I go through um, history and show how this technology is developed, how uh, urban society depends fundamentally on it, how those first cities needed finance in order to plan for uh, crops being planted and delivered and um, and uh, planning out how uh, uh, the herds that they uh, used for uh, wool um, production, how they should grow and and uh, and things like that. So let's go from that sort of five thousand year span to sort of the today, the here and now. You've been thinking a lot about this idea of equity participation in the economy as a way to deal with extreme inequality. I'd love to hear more about that. Tell us how you're thinking about it. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, for most of the people in the CFA, some of this will be familiar to them. You know, when I first began to learn about finance, the very first model I think I recall um, is the capital asset pricing model. And uh, it tells us what people should do. And, and it says, look, everybody in the world uh, in a, should have a slice of the global um, uh, world wealth portfolio. So no matter how much wealth you have or no matter how little wealth you have, you have a slice of that portfolio. So that's sort of an ideal version because we know uh, that's just not true for everybody. But if you think about that as a model, it's a beautiful model because it means everybody participates in the growth in the world economy. And everybody has access to uh, the growth of the economy. And in this world of, of um, inequality of wealth that we're continuing to experience, um, uh, the inequality... Um, in part, is due to the lack of access, a lack of common access to those engines of growth. So what I believe is that if we take this capital asset pricing model as a, um, as a wish list of how we would like to um, move forward and correct some of the inequalities in wealth today, um, we figure out ways of helping people buy into the world wealth portfolio. Um, and those ways might um, extend to uh, individual loans, but they also might be based on a model like the Norwegian um, pension fund model, which is a whole country decides to form a world wealth, uh, buy into the world wealth portfolio and then share the wealth um, with its citizens. 
So um, uh, that's sort of the logic, which is I don't think we're doomed to a model that uh, that uh, Thomas Piketty has suggested, uh, which is um, labor returns are very low um, compared to to, to um, capital returns, and that it's inevitable that these things will grow separately. Um, I think that um, if we can put more um, of the world wealth portfolio into the hands uh, of the people that are right now low wealth uh, uh, citizens, um, that um, it will not only uh, allow them to participate, but it will make them um, excited and positively disposed towards the opportunities for uh, for economic growth. So what will it take to get more buy-in for, for this idea of yours? Have you started sharing it more broadly beyond sort of academic circles? Well, you know, in the United States, in many countries, we're already on our way because the revolution in the creation of mutual funds at low cost was a fantastic thing that happened. And um, we also see um, this kind of um, view of, uh, of, of investment for retirement in uh, places like Australia, where you have uh, superannuation uh, funds and so on. So I think that this movement has already begun. Uh, right now, it's possible for, for many people in the world to buy um, low-cost, well-diversified global uh, portfolios. But not everybody can do it. So, so uh, one uh, easy first step is just to be able to provide access. Um, the more difficult uh, steps would re will require either financial innovation by companies uh, that, uh, uh, in effect, are lend people money to buy stocks uh, over the long term or by governments that figure out uh, how to do something along that, those same lines. Um, it, it, that's above my pay grade. Um, but um, so my, my thoughts about, um, about equity investment as a, as a road towards uh, equity broadly defined, um, I think helps us uh, imagine ways to solve this uh, this problem of, of inequality that we're discussing uh, today. Great. So earlier on in our, our conversation, you mentioned John Law. And uh, in an episode a few months ago, we had a guest who knew a lot about Ulysses Grant. And we played this little, I guess, uh, game called History in Five. And it seems John Law may be sort of an, an asterisk in financial history. And I'd love for you to share with the audience Five fun facts you think everyone should know about John Law. Uh, yes. Um, well, first of all, I already mentioned one, which was uh, he had escaped from uh, prison in the United, in UK. Well, he escaped from prison because he killed somebody in a duel. So uh, there, it's rare that you have a murderer rise to become the minister uh, of a nation state. Um, the second thing about him is that um, he was um, uh, a renowned tennis player and, um, and extremely handsome. So um, his, uh, 
his ability to uh, appeal to people in different ways may have been part of his his charisma uh, may have been played a part in his ability to reach the heads of state. Um, the other thing that's amazing about him is that um, he was a uh, a natural mathematician, uh, and he. He came of age in the late 1600s when the models that were being used to understand probability were just being developed. And um, so as a young man, um, he was a profligate. He spent all of his, fa all of his uh, father's money uh, living in London and, and just going to coffee houses and having a good time. But in those coffee houses, you could learn uh, about this new mathematics of probability. Uh, and um, so, uh, I don't know, I think they were called penny universities or something like this, because for the cost of a drink, in a little bit, you could get somebody to teach you uh, this, the sophisticated probability calculus that either could help you win at cards or help you price out complex uh, financial uh, instruments. Well, he studied about how to win at cards. And he was great at making bets. And that's how he became uh, a gambler. In fact, he ran, he was really kind of ran a moving casino through Europe. And if you're the bank in the casino, if you're the casino itself, you make money. The more people play, the more you make. So he became fabulously rich. So that's another one. The uh, fourth thing uh, is that he... I guess um, the most important thing for me these days is to try and understand that he was more than a kind of financial booster um, uh, that, that uh, you know, caused a bubble and then uh, let it burst. He really had a plan uh, to rescue the finances of France. And actually, the plan he had uh, worked on was uh, something he had proposed to other countries as well. And the plan began around a, a bank that had as its uh, assets land, um, that uh, people would borrow money on land, then that um, those loans would be, uh, in effect, become uh, money that they would, people could spend, but it was all backed by land. And that land bank idea, he was uh, kind of one of the few revolutionary um, theorists that thought that, um, that you could create a whole economy out of a, a land, land bank system. Um, finally, as part of his idea about how to create a new economy, uh, he decided that he would try and build up Normandy in France as an industrial center. He was very interested in these new mechanical ways of, of, uh, uh, of manufacturing things. And uh, so he hired people. He, he, he found people in Europe. I'm sorry. He found people in Great Britain uh, who were beginning working in uh, Manchester and, and uh, the uh, north of England in new, in new techniques. And he, he brought them to France. Um, you know, when people would run up a big bill uh, and uh, get into debt in England, they needed some place to go. He'd say, "Oh, you know how to build spinner spinning wheels and so forth. You come to France, 
Don't pay your debts. We'll pay you a lot of money. So there was a colony he created in uh, northern France that was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Of course, the roots of it were already starting to emerge also in northern England as well, or in the Midlands. But, um, but he had this idea that France could, be, could get onto the forefront of this new uh, industrial technology, and that would be the driver that would help the country move away from a, 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 an agrarian um, kind of uh, economy towards one that participated in world trade uh, across the Atlantic, but also uh, challenged uh, Great Britain as a manufacturing giant. Uh, of course, when John Law was chased out of the country, those plans fell apart very quickly. And, and so, um, you know, we, now we think, well, the Industrial Revolution uh, is a, something that England gave the world, Britain gave the world. But in fact, it could have gone different ways had John Law not um, uh, suffered from this uh, debacle of the Mississippi bubble bursting. His life story sounds just like something that Lin-Manuela Miranda would turn into a musical. <laughs> Maybe you should be writing a book about John Law and uh, turning it into a musical as your next project. Well, the musical idea sounds fantastic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I like to close out our episodes with, with two questions. Um, one is kind of just a, a silly question, and then one is more sort of long-term thinking. Um, the first question would be, you're about to get on a long duration space flight and you can take with you just one object. <clears throat> what would that object be? Well, um, that's a, a good question, but one of the answers um, I might um, respond with is a, um, a memory stick with, that would contain, um, now we probably can fit um, uh, most of the libraries in the world on a tiny uh, stick so that that would provide a lifetime's worth of uh, reading and study. Um, but you know, there's another interesting uh, argument for this. And when you said um, uh, getting on a, uh, a space flight, a long space flight, my next question was going to be, um, how fast would I go? <laughs> right. uh, uh, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> because, um, you know, uh, our uh, journalist and Nobel laureate Paul Krugman has a little known article uh, that's about interplanetary finance. And uh, it, he, I don't think he ever published it in a journal um, because it was just so strange. But, you know, um, that... Uh, uh, the uh, physics that Einstein gave us uh, tells you that as you're the, the closer you approach the speed of light, this your life, uh, the passage of your time slows down with relative to the passage of the uh, uh, of the worlds that you're moving between. So he worked out that um, what are the bounds of the interest rates that would have to prevail to prevent arbitrage across planets. Now, you know, it's Einsteinian physics, so there's no easy answer to that question. Um, but, um, but, you know, it might be that uh, you, uh, if the prices uh, were not set right between the two um, 
uh, your destination uh, and where you started, you might be able to actually do some, some arbitrage. Well, that is the, the great answer and the most original answer I've heard yet. So our, our final question is what I call the ray of sunshine question. And uh, we started doing this uh, once you know, the pandemic started, just as a way to end on something positive and optimistic. So what do you think or certainly hope will be a lasting positive change as a result of the pandemic? Well, I think that we have learned how to communicate and create um, uh, a society and maintain our culture through uh, these remote means, the way we're speaking now. And uh, at least from the perspective of a, of a teacher, um, I had my doubts that um, I'd be able to teach in the same way uh, in this circumstance. But what I've discovered um, w teaching um, and interacting with my students is that it's a different experience, but not worse. And there are many positive things about uh, this, um, uh, this remote uh, interaction that, um, that we can use going forward. I mean, certainly it may be a way to reduce a lot of transportation costs. Um, and, uh, but it's also a way for people to, to reach out to each other in, with different ways. We don't always, in a classroom, not everybody has to raise their hand. They can use a chat. They can give you their ideas in texting form in a way that you couldn't in a normal classroom. And for people that are a bit shy, um, this is a fantastic way for them uh, to get their ideas out. So I've just been uh, thrilled with the experiment, uh, understanding that, you know, there's nothing that humans need more than actually um, interacting physically and in the same place. But nevertheless, I think we're, we've discovered uh, another dimension to, to our society through this, um, through this shock. Well, as an introvert, that certainly warms my heart that people like me can still participate without necessarily having to put our hands up. Um, so I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today, Professor Getzman. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been great. Uh, thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.